We come, as I was hinting this evening, to consider the last verse in the sixth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, the 23rd verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, here, as I say, is the last verse of this great chapter. And it is a verse that comes as a very fitting end to this great and momentous chapter. We are looking at the chapter for the 22nd time. And I think that we have every reason to congratulate ourselves on having been able to deal uh, in the way we have dealt with it, with such a chapter in 22 sessions only. For it is, as we have seen, one of these great pivotal chapters, not only in this epistle, but in the whole of the Christian doctrine and the Christian way of salvation. There is certainly no more important chapter than this. And the measure of the extent to which we've been following it and understanding it is the measure in which we are rejoicing in Christ Jesus and in the liberty wherewith he has made and set us free. And I do trust that there is nobody here who is still in bondage. For this is the chapter of all chapters that shows us the way to true liberty. Now this last verse comes as the very word for at the beginning suggests as a kind of conclusion to something that has gone before it. And it is the conclusion of the immediate argument in which the apostle has been concerned. He started an argument in verse 20. And the argument is that he gives us reasons for paying heed to the exhortation of verse 19. The exhortation of verse 19 is this. As you have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members' servants to righteousness and to holiness. Why should we do this? Well, he tells us in verses 20 to 23. He's given us, as we've seen, reasons. He's presented us with arguments. When you were the servants of sin, you were entirely outside the realm of righteousness. A terrible state to be in, free from righteousness. Not only that, it was a fruitless life. What fruit had he then in those things of which he are now ashamed? Shameful life. Sin is a total loss. The life of sin is a complete loss with nothing whatsoever to redeem it. And the end of all that is death. But then on the other side, positively, he says, but now having been made free from sin and having become the servants or slaves to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For, he's now summing up that particular argument that he's been developing in verses 20, 21, and 22. He winds it up, he brings it to a conclusion by emphasizing this last point about the end in the two cases. Very well, this verse winds up the particular local argument, but it does more than that. It also winds up and ends the argument of the whole chapter, because this chapter is an argument from the beginning to the end. We stated at the beginning that it's a sort of parenthesis. He breaks off at the end of verse 21 in chapter 5. He'll take that up again in the first verse or perhaps the fifth, uh, we'll argue that when we come to that, in the eighth chapter. But certainly verse, uh, chapter six and seven are uh, a part of a great parenthesis in which he takes up an argument. So we can say that this last verse is in many ways a summary of the argument that he has been deploying and developing throughout the whole chapter. And the business of the argument is to refute this monstrous suggestion which he puts before us in verses 1 and 15. What then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? You see, having put before us his great doctrine of justification by faith only and the things that result from it immediately and of necessity, he takes up this charge 
that had been so frequently brought against him and the other preachers of this glorious gospel, this charge which has been brought against this true preaching of justification by faith ever since in the long history of the Christian church. He takes it up, and his whole object is, I say, to refute it and to show how utterly monstrous and inconceivable it is for anybody who truly understands this doctrine of justification by faith only. Very well. So it sums up the entire argument of the whole chapter. But we can say one other thing about it, and it's this. Verse 23, this last verse of chapter 6, is virtually a repetition of the last verse of chapter 5. He's back to the point of departure. Here's verse 21 of chapter 5, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, it's good that we should observe the apostle's great method. There is no question at all. The best comparison which we can use to show his method is that of the musical composer. There is something about these massive minds which is similar, irrespective of their particular realm. I remember hearing the late Sir Walter Davis once describe Beethoven as the Shakespeare of music. And I think there was a good deal to be said for his definition. Well, he meant by that that they've got the same sort of mind. And the Apostle Paul certainly has a similar mind. I would say a very much greater one, but it's the same type of mind, the same order of mind. And he seems to use the same method. You've noticed it in Beethoven, in his, in his sonatas and, and in his symphonies. He, he, he makes a statement. Then he takes up a, a subsidiary statement in the statement. And he works it out for a while. Then he takes up another one, and he works that up for a while. And you may feel that he has forgotten his original first statement. Never. He always comes back to it. He'll work it out, and he'll follow it, and he seems to be going right away, but he comes back to the point of departure. Now, the apostle does that very self-same thing here. He's made his basic statement in chapter 5, verse 21. Then he takes up this opposition along two main lines, follows them out, but he sees to it that in winding up his argument, he is back at the exact point from which he originally set out. So this verse is, I say, in many ways a repetition of the last verse of chapter 5, and it's like it, as you've observed, even down in details. One other thing we can say in general about this verse is this. It is uh, one of these great uh, statements of the gospel of salvation. The Apostle is very fond of doing that, as we've seen. He likes ever now and again to state the whole of the Gospel in one verse. He summarizes the whole thing, puts it, as it were, in a nutshell. And he obviously greatly enjoyed doing so. And I trust that we derive the same sort of enjoyment as we look at a verse like this. Well, now then, what does he say here? Well, there are some three things once more, that uh, stand out on the very surface of this verse before we come to analyze it in detail. This is, of course, true of his presentation of the gospel always. It's true of every other presentation of the gospel in the New Testament. Th these are the things. One, there are two possibilities facing every person who comes into this world. And there are only two. They're in this, aren't they? Wages of sin is death, gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's either that or that. You see, you're back again uh, once more to your house on the sand or the house on the rock. You're looking once more uh, to the broad, uh, the wide gate or the straight and narrow gate, to the broad way or the narrow way. It's uh, mammon or God. Uh, inevitable. It's one or the other. And it's, there are only two possibilities. That is something which might very well detain us, but we mustn't allow it to do so. Let's be clear about this. All the non-Christian views confronting mankind this evening belong to the one category. The world makes a great deal, of course, about the minor differences. But from the standpoint of this book and of salvation, they're all one. They're divided up into nationalities. They're divided up by iron curtains and bamboo curtains. They're divided politically, socially, and in many other respects, they're all ir irrelevant, absolutely irrelevant. Those divisions don't matter in the, in the light of eternity at all. 
This is the only division, and it's one or the other, only two possibilities, no more. Secondly, these two possibilities are completely different from one another. Now, I emphasize the word completely. They are altogether and entirely different, as we shall see in a moment. We've already seen that many times as we've been working through this chapter. Yes, he's summarizing it all up here at the end. There is nothing in common between these two views. You don't gradually shade off from one to the other. There is no gray in the spiritual realm. Everything here is black or white. And you don't gradually tail off. Nothing like a spectrum here. Stark differences, absolute contrasts, altogether different. We must never cease to emphasize that. There is nothing in common between the Christian and the non-Christian in a spiritual sense. Nothing at all. They're absolutely different. And we must emphasize that repeatedly. This is new life, and it's absolutely different from that other position. And that brings me to my third and last general point, which is this, that each of these two, which are so different, has its own internal consistency. Each one is consistent with itself. It's absolutely different from the other. Yes, but it's consistent within itself. Or if you prefer it, I'll put that in a different way. Each one of these two leads inevitably and by an inexorable law to ends which are, I say, quite inevitable. Start on the one road and you're bound to arrive at a given destination. Start on the other road, and you're bound to arrive at a different destination. There is this inward consistency within the two, though they're so essentially different. Now here, of course, the apostle is particularly concerned to emphasize the difference in the end. He's been bringing out the other differences in verses 20, 21, and 22, and we've been working our way through that. But you see, he mentioned the end at the close of verse 22. Now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, you have your fruit unto holiness and the end, everlasting life. Ah, he feels, I must underline this end. He'd mentioned in verse 21 that the end of the other was death. Oh, this is so tremendous, he seems to say. I'm going to say that again and I'll underline it, I'll re-emphasize this thing. So, this verse is particularly concerned with the differing ends of these two ways of life. Now then, in the light of all that, let us come and look at his contrasts. I've attempted to classify the contrasts under these headings. First, the master we serve. The analogy he's been using, you remember, is one of slavery. Very well. So the first contrast we see as between these two possibilities confronting every soul that is born into this world the first contrast is the master whom we serve. And here it is again, as I say, only two possibilities. It's either sin or else it's God. The wages of sin, there's the one master. The gift of God, there's the other master. You see, he'd brought us to that, hadn't he? But now being made free from sin and become slaves to God. It's either sin or God. And everybody in the world at this moment is either a slave to sin or else is a slave of God. There's no neutrality in the spiritual realm. There's no no man's land in the spiritual realm. You cannot serve God and mammon. We've been seeing that repeatedly. This is the one thing that matters. Who are we serving? Who's our master? And this is the point, you see, at which once more we see that all the talk about morality and ethics and conduct and doing good and all the rest of it is completely irrelevant. The only thing to know about a man is this, not how much good does he, does he do, not uh, what are his ideals, how philanthropic is he. No, no, that's not the question to ask. The only question you need ask about any man is this, who's his master? To whom is he a slave? And though he may be an apparently the paragon of all the virtues, and though he may be a man who does a tremendous lot of good, and though he may be a most moral and ethical man, 
And though he may appear at first sight to be a very much better man than most people who are members of Christian churches, though he never goes to a church at all, I say, that's not the thing to, to, to look at. That's not the thing to discover. The one question the Bible wants to know about every one of us is this. Who do you, whom do you serve? For whom are you living? Who's your master? Is it sin? Or is it God? Now, I am emphasizing this for this reason. That it is the essential fight of the Christian gospel, I feel today, to bring out just this very point. I've been saying this quite a lot recently. I'm simply repeating what the apostle says. It isn't that I want to, but he makes me say it because he says it. Now, I say this is the great fight for the Christian faith today. People are so impressed by these wonderful men, they say handsome to look at and who speak so nicely on the television and they do so much good and uh, they, they talk so learnedly and they talk so much about doing good and ethics and so on. They say, fine men, that's the word. Well, it doesn't matter how fine a man a man may be if he isn't doing it all for God. He's a slave of sin. Now, the apostle not only says that here, he says it in a most uh, interesting manner in the second epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 11, where he puts it like this. He says, you know, people, there are some people, he says, who are troubling you, uh, good Corinthians, and uh, he's concerned that he should deliver them from these false apostles, these specious persons. He says, what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. For such, verse 13, 11th chapter, 2nd, Corinthians, for such, he says, are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. Now there it is once and forever. These people appear to be the ministers of righteousness. Ah, oh, yes, says the apostle, but you shouldn't be deluded by that. You shouldn't be deceived by that, as Eve was deceived by the serpent there in the Garden of Eden. You should realize that they're able to transform themselves into angels of light and into men that appear as if they were Christians, the apostles of Christ. But it's all false. They're serving the devil. And you shouldn't be surprised that this, says Paul, because as the master does this, well, it's not very surprising that they themselves should imitate him and try to do the same thing. Now, the upshot of all this is this, that we mustn't judge men by the good they do, nor by the good and nice things they say. There is only one question. Is all this done for the glory of God? Because if it isn't, it is all done in slavery to sin and to Satan. Very well, good Christian people, don't be frightened as you hear these men praised and people point at them and look at them. See, that's, that's quite irrelevant. That's not the thing I'm concerned about. If they are not living to the glory of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, well, they're in exactly the same category as the vilest and the foulest sinners that are in the world this evening. And all their righteousness is but as filthy rags. Let's say that. Let's assert it. Let's not be deceived by this appearance. It is the master whom you serve that determines what you are. Now, the apostle has said all that, hasn't he, in verse 16? But he says it again here, you see, in the last verse. So that enables us to go on to the second point, which is this. There we see the complete contrast in the masters. Now let us look at the complete contrast that is to be observed in the contracts or in the conditions under which we serve. The masters which we serve are quite different. Yes, so are the conditions or the contracts under which we serve under these masters are absolutely different. Nothing in common. On the one hand it is wages, on the other hand it is a gift. Now, let's look at these. The wages of sin is death. 
It's generally agreed that a better translation might be the rations. The word the apostle used is, was the word that was used about the rations that were given out to the soldiers and the slaves in imperial Rome. They were made to work as slaves and then they were given a ration of food and perhaps some certain amount of money. A ration was doled out. They were in utter slavery, but they were given their rations. That's what the apostle says, the rations of sin. It's something earned, in other words. It's something that you deserve. It's something that you merit. You've rendered service for it. But a question arises, who decides or what decides as to the rations that are to be given to these slaves of sin? And the answer is, of course, the law. It's the law that decides that. The law has laid it down perfectly plainly and clearly what the result of such a life and such a conduct is going to be. In other words, he reminds us here at the very end of something that he has been reminding us of since we were dealing with verse 20 in chapter 5, that sin and law always go together. Here it is. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin offended, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. There it was there. But we'd already seen the same thing in chapter 4 and in verse 15 where he says, because the law worketh wrath. You see, law and sin go together. And when we get to chapter 8, we shall find that he puts it like this in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. There it is, perfectly explicit. Law of sin and death. Law, sin, death. They all go together. He's very fond of saying this. You see, he says it at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. These are against us. Very well, then, it is the law that decides that the rations paid to the man who's been a slave of sin is death. The law decides that. Now, there's a very good statement of this principle in the epistle to the Hebrews, in the second chapter and the second verse, Hebrews 2.2. 2. It puts it like this. For if the words spoken by angels were steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. Now, the word given, uh, spoken by angels, of course, was the word of the law. He's referring to the law as given uh, to Moses and mediated by angels. That's what he's talking about. The word spoken by angels is the law. And what the law does is this. It says that every transgression and disobedience should receive a just recompense of reward. For service is rendered, that's the just recompense of reward. And as he tells us, it is death. So on the one hand, you've got wages, rations, determined by the law in a strictly legal manner. The soul that dieth it, the soul that sinneth it shall die. That's the prescription of the law. That's the ration it says is going to be given, and it is given. That's a matter of rations. But on the other hand, you see, we have a gift. And it means a free gift. This isn't earned, this isn't merited, this isn't a just recompense. It's altogether different. It's the complete antithesis. This is solely the result of God's goodness and God's grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Kindness shown to someone who doesn't deserve any kindness at all. It is the free gift of God to people who are utterly undeserving of it. Now that is true of the whole of the Christian life from beginning to end. It is the part of the great contrast between sin and grace which is put before us in chapter 5 verse 21 that as sin hath reigned unto death even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. It refers to the whole of the Christian life from beginning to end. It is true of the entire method of salvation.
It is the thing that had made the apostle say in verse 16 of chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Oh, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein a righteousness of God from God by faith. This is the thing, God's free gift, this wonderful grace. And he bursts out in the same way when he comes to the 21st verse of chapter 3 and brings it out explicitly, remember, in verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How he rejoices in repeating these wonderful statements. Well, there is the second contrast. The two masters are different. The terms of service in the two cases are again a complete contrast and altogether different. And thirdly, and lastly, the end to which each one leads is absolutely and altogether different. And as I say this verse, is particularly concerned to emphasize the difference in the end. Now, the apostle here is not concerned to tell us so much as to how we arrive at that end. He's already told us that. In the case of sin, he says that these are the steps. Disobedience, unrighteousness, uncleanness, iniquity. Those are the steps. The servant, the slave of sin, is always led along that line. Didn't it happen there in the garden? Adam and Eve had been living a life of obedience to God. The devil comes in. What's his first suggestion? That they should disobey. That they should do what God had told them not to do. That's disobedience. That's the first step. Disobedience. And the moment you've done that, you become guilty of unrighteousness. And that in turn leads to uncleanness, as we saw, you remember, in verse... 19, and that in turn leads to iniquity unto iniquity. Those are the steps. The steps on the other side we have also seen. He starts saying it in verse 16. You're led first of all to obedience, and obedience leads to righteousness, and righteousness as we've seen leads to holiness. What a wonderful difference once more. All right, but the apostle's concern here, I say, is to emphasize the difference in the ends at which we arrive in the two slaveries along those various lines. In the case of the end to which sin leads us, it is death. If you are a slave of sin, you will be led by sin along those horrible steps and at the end, death. What does he mean by this? What does he mean by saying that the wages of sin is death? Well, it means death in every form. The moment men disobeyed, he died spiritually. Spiritual death, separation from God. But we realize also that it included physical death. Man was never meant to die, either spiritually or physically. But as the result of disobedience and sin, he has died spiritually and physically. But here the apostle is not so much looking at the proximate results of slavery to sin as the final result, the final outworking of it, the ultimate destiny. And what is that? The wages of sin is death. That's the end at which it arrives. In the meantime, as he's been telling us, it leads to uncleanness and iniquity and to iniquity and so on. Ah, yes, but he says, what's the final end of it all? Well, that's death. What does this mean? The best answer to that is to take you again to that term which we encountered more than once in the reading at the beginning in the 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. It is the second death. The wages of sin, the end to which sin brings you is the second death. Did you notice how there John drew this distinction? You see, those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, they don't take part in the second death, but all the others do. The wages of sin is death, this second death. What does it mean? Well, it means a final and irreversible 
separation from God and from the face of God and from the life of God. It means to be eternally outside God's life with all the consequent misery and all the consequent suffering. That's the second death. That is the ultimate fate of the ungodly, to be eternally outside the life of God and all its beneficent and loving and noble and holy and pure influences. It is to be left in your uncleanness and your iniquity unto iniquity and that getting worse and ever worse without relief, altogether shut off and cut off, finally, from God, the second death. To be cast into that lake, as the imagery puts it there at the end of the 20th chapter of Revelation, the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, into which death and Hades are cast, and the beast and the image and the devil, and there to be everlastingly outside the life of God. That's the end if you're a slave of sin. But what is the end if you're a slave of God? Oh, what a contrast. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. What's eternal life? Well, it doesn't merely mean everlasting existence. It does mean that you continue everlastingly as the other does. But it doesn't only mean that. Indeed, that is the least significant thing about it. Eternal life essentially means this. Knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our Lord himself who defines it like that in John's Gospel, chapter 17, verse 3. This is life eternal. He says that God has sent him to give eternal life to as many as he had given him. And this is life eternal. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That's eternal life. The knowledge of God, that is life. You see, death means not to know him and to be shut out from all his presence and his glory and all his blessings. So eternal life is the exact opposite. It is to know God, not to know about God, but to know him. And to know him, as we are dealing here with the ultimate end, absolutely perfectly. It means, therefore, all blessedness. It means unalterable and spotless holiness. It means imperishable glory. That's what eternal life means. It doesn't merely mean that you and I will go on existing. No, no, we will go on living in the presence of God. We shall see God. We'll live in the presence of God and in the light of the Lamb. And we shall be absolutely holy. We shall be like God because we are his children. It will be, I say, unalterable and spotless holiness, imperishable glory. We shall be glorified. We shall be like him. The apostle elsewhere says that it means that we shall receive a crown. Do you remember how he puts it in writing his last letter? The last letter of all that he wrote, it's the second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 8. Listen, henceforth, he says, henceforth, he's looking to the end. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day. And not to me only, thank God he went on to say this. Otherwise we might feel, ah, yes, he was a great man and a wonderful saint, and he deserved it. Not to me only, he says, but unto all them that love is appearing. You and I shall receive this crown of righteousness. In other words, it is perfection. We shall be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. We shall be enjoying the beatific vision. We shall be enjoying the glory which God will have given us. The glory that he gave to his son he's going to give to us. We shall be glorified entirely so. Completely saved in every respect. That's what eternal life means. Sharing and enjoying the life of God to all eternity. Without the slightest suspicion of an admixture of sin or evil. There will be no sin there. There will be no sighing. There will be no sorrow. There will be no tears. There will be no partings. 
It is all glory, unmixed, absolute glory, the perfection of God himself which he will have put upon us. That's what it means. Full life in every respect, body, mind, and spirit. The whole person entirely delivered from every vestige or relic of sin and completely glorified. It will be something that even Adam didn't enjoy. Adam was perfect. Adam was innocent. But he didn't have eternal life. Because if you have eternal life, you see, you can't lose it. You can't die. And Adam did. No, no. In him, in Christ, in him, the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. Adam would have gone on to this had he continued in obedience, but he didn't. If he had continued in obedience, he would have had this eternal life. This is the thing which the Lord is giving us as the end of our salvation. Now, Peter, I've quoted the apostle Peter there. In his first epistle, first chapter, in verse 9, he says, Receiving the end of your salvation. And this is what he means. It is the same thing. Well, now then, this is the position. This eternal life, of course, begins here. We are given eternal life immediately. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, but the apostle here is concerned about the ultimate end of it. We've got it, yes, but we're going to receive it also. Have you noticed that apparent contradiction in the, in the scriptures? Here he's talking about the end. We are already saved, but Peter says you're going to receive your salvation as an end. That's what it means. We are only given a foretaste here. We are only given a first installment. We are only given a little sample. But the thing itself awaits us. Henceforth, as Paul says, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. That's the end. The crowning day is coming by and by for us. He's going to give us this crown of righteousness. We shall be finally glorified and perfect and entire and complete. There then are the three contrasts. The two masters, the two terms of service, the two ends at which we arrive. And there it is, isn't it? He's finished the contrasts. Yes, but he hasn't finished the verse. He never leaves it like that. He said all he's got to say, you know, about the contrasts. Masters, terms of service, ends. What more is there? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And then he seems to say, how has this become possible? How can this have happened? And he tells us once more, he brings in the blessed name. Through Jesus Christ. Our Lord. He couldn't leave that out. He never leaves it out. Do you remember how he ended chapter 5? That a sinner reigned unto death. Even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. By Jesus Christ our Lord. He never misses it. Take verse 11 in this sixth chapter. Likewise reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but uh, alive unto God. That's the thing he was out to say. Uh, yes, but he can't stop. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. He couldn't stop. He never fails to go on to add this. He never fails to remind us of the way in which it has all come to us and all has been made possible. Do you and I feel like him? Or do you and I stop with our neat classifications and forget the Lord who has brought it all to us and without whom we'd have nothing at all? The whole of your life, my dear friend, is in Christ. It's through or in Jesus Christ our Lord. Everything is from him and without him there is nothing at all. This blessed thing which is offered us and promised us, it is all in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is in him and because of him that we are justified freely by God. We receive our justification as the result of his work, 
his spotless life of obedience, his atoning sacrificial death, where he received our punishment, we are justified, says Paul in one place, you remember in chapter 5 in verse 9, by his blood, delivered for our offenses, raised again for, his just, for our justification. It's in Jesus Christ, incarnation, life, obedience, agony, death, burial, grave, resurrection, ascension, return, seating on the right hand. It's through Jesus Christ our Lord, and without him we have nothing. Oh yes, it is because of him that God declares us to be righteous and imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but he doesn't leave it at that. He joins us to him. That's what we've been considering in this chapter, isn't it? Uh, no, we not. He says that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should live, should walk in newness of life, planted together in the likeness of his death. We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We are joined to him. That's the great theme of the chapter. We are in him. And because of that, you see, he's drawn these deductions, hasn't he? Because we are in Christ and joined to him, we have been set free from sin. We are dead to sin. It has no more power or authority or rule or reign over us. And secondly, we are alive unto God. And the exceeding greatness of his power to us that believe. I'm open to that. I'm in the plan and the purpose of God. He has set his affection upon me. He has known me before the foundation of the world. I'm in this great plan and scheme of redemption. Christ's life is in me as I am in him. He's the vine and I'm the, the branch. He's the head and we are the members of the body. And because of him we have received the Spirit. The Spirit that dwelt in him dwells in us. And it is this Holy Spirit that leads us and guides us and directs us, brings to us the Scripture, opens our understanding and opens the Word to us, causes us to sow to the Spirit. It is the Spirit that produces our sanctification and it's progressive and it goes on and on. But we have received the Spirit through Jesus Christ because we are in him and joined to him. That's what he's saying. If you like, we can put it all like this as I close. God's purpose is to bring us to glory. It became him, it behoved him, it says Hebrews 2.10, of whom are all things and for whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Here's the object, you see, bringing many sons to the glory that I've been trying to describe to you. That is God's purpose. The whole object of salvation is to bring us to that glory where we shall be perfect and spotless and sinless, no wrinkle nor any such thing, absolutely holy and perfect in the presence of God. That is God's purpose, to bring us there. Is there anything, therefore, which can be so utterly monstrous and idiotic and foolish and irrational as to suggest that such preaching is preaching that leads people to say this, shall we continue in sin then that grace may abound, or shall um, we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Monstrous lunatics, says the, apostles in effect, the apostle in effect. Can't you see that the whole object of the thing is to bring us to glory, this end of eternal life? How can such a program, such a purpose in such a way ever be any sort of encouragement to sin? That's how he finally ridicules it, you see. The purpose of God is the exact opposite of sin. All God teaches us is the exact opposite of sin. Christ to whom we are joined is the exact opposite of sin. He was perfect, sin apart, tempted in all points like as we are, sin apart, without sin. He was holy, he was unblameable, he was undefiled, and we are joined to him. It's the antithesis, the exact opposite of sin. What a suggestion that such preaching should encourage people to go on sinning. So that leaves us with a final question, doesn't it? 
What is it in any man that can ever make him misunderstand such a gospel? What was it that made these critics of Paul say, oh, this preaching of this man on justification by faith is an enticement and an incitement to sin? How can men say such a thing face to face with such statements and such a gospel? Oh, I want to ask another question. What is it that accounts for the fact that men and women who have heard this gospel ever deliberately prefer to live a life of sin with all its uncleanness and all its iniquity and though they are told it's going to lead to that second death which will be endless suffering, a life that's unprofitable, a life that's unclean and that leads to such an eternal end What is it in man, I say, that makes him, when he hears this, deliberately reject it and think he's clever in doing so and deliberately choose the other? What is it? What is it that accounts for the fact that any man who's ever heard the gospel and its offer of the free gift of salvation can refuse it? There's only one answer, my friend. Such people are spiritually dead. They are slaves of Satan. They have been blinded by the God of this world. Can there be any other explanation? As you look at the two types of life, in every respect, from beginning to end, the masters, the type of life lived, the things it leads to, and the ultimate end, as you look at the two, and see people rejecting the glory and deliberately choosing the other and boasting of it and gloating in it, I say, what explains it? There's only one explanation. They're dead in trespasses and sins. They are the slaves of sin and Satan. They are blinded by the God of this world. What is it that explains then that any one of us is a Christian? Because we were all like that. We are all born like that. What makes any man a Christian? Oh, it is grace. It is wondrous grace. There's no other explanation. A debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy I sing. Nothing else. Nothing of which we can boast. It is all God's infinite kindness and compassion. It is because of the exceeding riches of his grace. It is because of his abundant mercy. It is because God is love. Oh, may this love, this grace, possess us whole. And so deal with us that we shall feel that the exhortations that we have met in this chapter, in verses 12 and 13, and in verse 19, is something that comes to us as the height of reasonableness. We mustn't yield our bodies. We mustn't allow sin to reign in our mortal flesh or yield our instruments and our members as servants and implements of unrighteousness and sin. Seeing this, we must gladly obey the exhortation and yield our every faculty and all we have and are as instruments and servants and vehicles and implements of righteousness unto holiness and to the praise of our glorious God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you already possess the installment? Do you know that the first stirrings are within you? Do you look with anticipation at the glory which is coming at the crown of righteousness which God himself will place upon your brow. Do you meditate upon this bliss, this wonder that is awaiting us?
to be with Christ, to be basking in the sunshine of God's glory, to be glorified ourselves, and to spend our eternity in that glorious condition. Amen. O Lord our God, we know not how to come to thank Thee for this amazing, wondrous grace we humbly bow before thee. Lord, thou knowest our hearts, how we realize that we owe all unto thee and to thy matchless grace. O God, grant that we may so see it, that we shall hate sin with a deadly hatred and live only to thy glory, live only to be used of thee and to tell forth thy prayers. Grant that we may so see it, that we shall learn more and more to look to the glory that awaits us, that we may be able to say with thy servant of old, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Grant that we may so see it, that whatever hardship may come to meet us, however great the trials may be, we shall be able to say, down in the depth of our being, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. O oh God, grant unto us such glimpses of it that we shall set our affections on things above not on things which are on the earth. O oh God, we bless thy name that this salvation is thine, that we are thy slaves, that we are in thy hands. We gladly leave ourselves there and pray that thou dost go on with thy glorious work within us, change from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and prayers. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this our short, uncertain earthly life and pilgrimage and until we arrive in the glory Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.